0: Well, good morning, may I add my welcome to David's. As David said, my name is Will, I'm the assistant minister here. Would you please take up your Bibles? They're either on the windowsills or in front of you or by the entrance to the balcony. And turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 12. Let's listen to God's words to us. So if you remember from last time, Absalom has made it back to Jerusalem and even met the king. Now after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was at Geshur in Aram, saying... If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counsellor from his city, Jilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Amen. Now here in 2 Samuel 15, as I said, we're back with Absalom King David's son. We had the return of his exile last week. And now, it's not just returned, he wants to be king. Yes, there might be my father David, he's saying, but there's another option. There's me, Absalom. Now we live in a society of seemingly loads of options, rather than having lots of kings on offer, we have lots of different worldviews, don't we, in faiths on offer, Britain can feel a bit like a, a marketplace of ideas, you know, just have a think this week um, of what you've seen or come across, I don't know, perhaps you have a, a Muslim neighbour, one of your kids' friends is a Hindu. Um, but then there are those who, who say they have no faith but, and, and, and don't really care, but then they live lives uh, that suggest they're living for something. Um, a, a colleague, I don't know, who, who lives for their job. Every, every moment of their free time even is consumed by it. Or they work, 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 so they can spend, spend, spend. Or perhaps you've walked by a, a pride poster on your way here. Another view of life, the importance of me defining who I am, not God's. And as we hear all these different words spoken to us, the the stories taught in school and in in the films we watch, we we can become uh, to be like the people of Israel here in 2 Samuel 15. Now God has put his king in Zion, and for the people of Israel it was David who was king. Yet they started to go for Absalom. And we know David was was pointing forward to the true and eternal King, Jesus Christ, God's King. And yet, like them, we can we can start to move over to the side of the pretenders to the throne. Rather than bowing before God's King, we, we start to be allured by another, another King, another God. That's what idolatry is. It's it's finding a different king, a different God to the true one. But why? And why might we be won over by the the gods of the nations or the, the gods, I don't know, of money or control or freedom, say? Well, here in 2 Samuel 15, we get a window, a window into what makes idols and their messages so persuasive. And we're going to spend some time with Absalom so we can see through the lies and stick with the true God and his true king. So firstly, don't be deceived by king-like promises. That's the first thing we need to see. Don't be deceived by king-like promises. Let's have a look at Absalom's tactics. And we'll start to see the attraction of it all. Now, firstly, we see he looks good. We've already heard that he's a handsome man before with his his, his luscious locks. But now he he starts to take on the appearance of a king, verse one. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, most people don't head off through town like this, do they? But Absalom, he's trying to look kingly. He's got his horse. He's got his fancy chariot. He's, he, he's got an escort, like a, an ancient version of a motorcade, isn't it? He's got his 50 men or perhaps their bodyguards uh, running along with him. And he's making a stir. People start talking. He's got the king-like look. He's like a, you know, the presidential candidate who brings out his smiling family with perfect teeth for the, for the photo shoots. But it's not just his look, it's his words, his promises, his king-like promises. Absalom heads to the city gate. That's like heading to the city court, and it's where decisions were made. And he gets there early, just to make sure no one gets through without speaking to him. And he, he gets talking, he, he, but then he drops in a little line of attack on the present king. Verse 3, Absalom would say to him, see your claims are good and right. He hasn't checked, but they're good and right, he says, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. In other words, the king, oh, he's not doing his job. He's letting you down. And then here comes the promises, verse four, then Absalom would say, oh, that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I'd give him justice. And what's brilliant here is that line, give him justice. He isn't saying, I'm gonna do what's right He means I'm going to declare everyone who comes to me to be right. He's already said that the person's claim is good and he's not even asked for the details. And now he's promising he's going to give exactly what you want. What you want, I will give it. You know, he's like the politician claiming he's going to lower taxes, increase spending, and balance the books. And then his final manoeuvre is the, is the kind of kingship he promises. Verse five, and whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, so as to bow down, pay him a gift perhaps, he would, he'd put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. It's like, it's like he's saying, don't, don't think of me as your king. Think of me as a friend, a father. I'm your equal, not a taskmaster. He's like the boss who takes out his new staff for a drink and says, knock on my door any time. And verse six, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It's a success. And it's all been an utter sham, hasn't it? They've been completely duped. It's a deception. He might look like the king, but he's not. David is the one on the throne, whatever Absalom rides around in. And his words might sound good, but they promise too much. They're things he can't promise. He can't promise everything will go right for everyone. And his manner, is that, is that really the future? Is he going to be a king like that where everyone's welcome, where he's really a friend? He, this is the man who murdered his brother. He set fire to Jobs field, and now he's trying to steal the throne off his dad. Will he be any different to that once he's king? It's treacherous, it's deceiving, it's fake. And yet people went with him. They fell for it, they're lured in. Why? it's because the promises, these king-like promises, they tap into the greed of our hearts. He promises greatness. These king-like fakes, they they look good. And then they they, they promise what we want. They promise justice or contentment, freedom, a long life. They promise glory. And they seemingly promise it for us and need nothing in return. Absalom, he seemed to promise everything. And He didn't ask for the details. He didn't even demand homage in return. No payment here. I'll give you everything and demand nothing from you. No bowing down, no hard questions. I'll give you the desires of your heart. And we're greedy for it. We're greedy for glory. So we're taken in. And we see this in the promise of money, don't we? Just get me and you'll have everything you want, especially happiness. I don't demand anything. I just give, 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 and you'll be satisfied. You know, it's how advertising works, isn't it? You know, Red Bull, it gives you wings. It's, it's the added extra. It's what we want in life. We'll take the promise of, of freedom for the self. Just, just focus on yourself and you'll discover what's inside of you. Be real and everything will sort itself out. You'll live your dreams. I once heard that at one of the country's top schools, the kids had an unofficial motto. It was effortlessly brilliant. That's what we want, isn't it? Glory, effortless Glory. We're greedy for it. And that's because actually, at the heart of our sin is this we want to be God. We want to be in control. We want the glory. Just the fact that Absalom gave people a choice. You know, you could have David, but you could have me. And that's pandering to their most base, sinful desire to be God themselves, to choose their king, not to have God's king. It's like back in the garden in Genesis 3. Eve was tempted of the idea of being like God's. So we, we choose the idol, the offer that pleases us most. We're in charge, so we pick the God we like. We're God over it, we tell ourselves. And so we choose perhaps the, idea, idol, sorry, the idol of career or money or my own identity, and they, they, offer, they all offer king-like promises. We just take the best offer. But don't be deceived. We mustn't be deceived. They're just superficial like Absalom. It's lies, It all looks good until we find ourselves worshiping, worshiping an enslaved to the God we were thought were in charge of. Absalom, he's a fake, he's a forgery. Oh, he could put on a show, he could say all the right things, attract all the right people. But firstly, he never had the right to promise those things. And secondly, we know he wouldn't have stayed like that. We've seen too much of him to know that. He gets what he wants, however he wants. He's a tyrant. As those people thought their choice of king would bring good, it would only lead to pain and misery. Because we're made by God to be worshippers, that's why. So we never end up as God. We end up as slaves to the gods we were thought we were in charge of. These fate like promises, they promise everything in return for nothing, but in the end they give nothing in return for everything. Money, never quite, gives what it promises does it because it can never promise eternal happiness it's only for god to give so we we enjoy what we have for a little and then we wonder oh if only i had a bit more if only i had that, that better salary that that, that that other car i had a bit more and, and then i'll be happy oh no just a bit more actually and then I, then i'll be happy and we end up enslaved or the freedom of our own self and identity it becomes so important that nothing must get in the way of it and everyone else is pushed away and all we can go is deeper and deeper into ourselves, trapped with no way out. Fake gods, these things that make king-like promises, well, they're superficial. We mustn't be deceived by them because under the surface they take life, not give it. It's because they're leeches. They're leeches on the truth, leeches on God's glory. We were made for greater we weren't made for pretenders to the throne. We were made for the real thing. Only God as the giver of life can promise life in all its fullness. Only God can satisfy because he is eternal, overflowing in fullness. Now perhaps this morning you're not a Christian uh, and you might think I'm a bit crazy saying this. You know, what you live your life for right now, you, you think, well, it is giving me what I've wanted. Well, if that's you, I'd just say, give it time. Just have a think. You know what, Why at the moment in our society are mental health issues getting worse? Why do celebrities often turn to drink when, uh, when they seem to have everything as their lives spiral out of control? How are our gods actually doing in our society? But most of us here... Uh, we, we are Christians, we're here because we believe God is actually the one worthy of our worship. We know God has shown us the real king, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again. Praise God. And we know that's not our achievement. We, we, wouldn't, we, we would be deceived right now if it hadn't been for God's grace. Because even on the big scale, we, we know we've got eyes on the true king. But it's amazing how quickly we can be lured again, isn't it, by the fake King like promises. It sneaks in. Sneaks in. It's so frustrating. And we we spot it as we spot our greed. As we spot our greed for glory. Isn't it true? We just we just think, look at what their God gives them today. Look at their life or what they get to do and what they get to enjoy. And our eyes just become taken by the superficial. We wonder about their God. And we forget the lies. We forget it can't last because it's not given by God himself. And we're drawn in, aren't we? We're drawn in, trying to have two gods at the same time, Sunday for God and the week for me. But instead, we've got to look to the real. Life is found not in getting effortless glory for ourselves. It's found in glorifying another, glorifying gods, going outwards, glorifying him and his true king. It's found in worship, God is not like the fakes. He doesn't promise us everything in demand for nothing and then enslave us. No, he gives us more than we could ever imagine, but in return for everything. We give him our lives, our worship, our honor, and then we find in him life itself. God's king, he asks us to trust him, to trust him with our lives, our deaths, our hearts, our pleasures, our suffering. But as we come to him, we find what we are made for. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. As we give glory to him, we find ourselves caught up in that glory. Jesus, he's the good shepherd. He laid his life down for the sheep, the vine who gives life to the branches. Don't be deceived by kinglike promises. Look to the true king. But secondly, this can get tricky when those promises take on some religious clothing. So secondly, let's, don't be deceived by religious appearances. Don't be deceived by religious appearances because Absalom, let's go back. After four years of biding his time, getting everything ready, stealing the hearts of the people, he finally makes his move and he heads to see David. Verse seven, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Hasn't Absalom got the right things to say? He had a cover-up for the murder of Amnon, and once again he's got a cover-up here, and here it's religious. I'm off to Hebron, Dad, but don't worry. I know it's the city where you were first made king, but don't worry, I'm I'm off to offer sacrifices and fulfill vows. I just need to spend some time with the Lord. This is worship, Dad. I'm spending time with God. And the thing is, on the surface, he's the servant. He calls himself a servant. He's David's servant. He's off to worship God as God's servant. But underneath, it's all self-serving. As one commentator put it, Absalom had no intention of being a servant to anyone. It feels like the, the, the kind of thing we might see, I don't know, in politicians, in more religious countries, perhaps you know, a presidential candidate heading to church even though they, they don't believe it. It's all a show, all a show for the media and voters. And it's, in Absalom, it's so clear. At the end of the passage, verse 12, even as he's offering sacrifices, he's maneuvering to take over God's king. He sends for the king's chief advisor, Ahithophel himself and we know this is all self-seeking because of the timing Absalom he is impatient for glory he was the he's the heir to the kingdom anyway and yet he decided it was time to take it now oh he, he'd been willing to wait 4 years but that was his timing it's not God's timing all this religious appearance it's all for himself it's a facade to get what he wants when he wants it. My glory now, he says. And the thing is, we see these religious appearances today. Okay, they, they use all the right language. It's there. Jesus' name. The Bible is even read. But dig a little bit deeper and we find simply an impatience for human glory. A desire to make us king, not Jesus. You know, just take something I don't know, like the prosperity gospel. At the heart of the prosperity gospel is the belief that since Jesus has de- defeated sin, that also means right now in this life, poverty and illness are defeated for all. You just need to have enough faith. And we, we express that faith by, by giving to get. Give money and you'll get all the more. And they use all the right words, Jesus, sin, faith, even uh, quote verses from the Bible, but at its heart, it's human glory. The goal for the preacher and the goal for the listener it's your own financial blessing. It's your own healthy body. You are amazing, you're wonderful, just tap into what's inside of you and you will have glory. Kenneth Copeland, a prosperity preacher, somehow he can defend having three private jets, it's personal luxury all wrapped up in religious language. It's impatience for glory. An American pastor recently put the problem like this. One of the greatest mistakes of Western Christianity is associating worldly success with the favor of God. That's it, isn't it? We're, we've gone for worldly success over the true worship of God's. And it's true in liberal Christianity too, although it looks different. We, we see all the right words. It speaks of sin and salvation, Jesus' death and resurrection. It speaks of eternal life. But once again, under the surface, something else is going on. Sin, it doesn't actually mean deep rebellion. It's, it's kept outside of us. It's, it's only the unjust structures out there. In fact, in general, humans are good. And so Jesus just comes to give us an example. He shows us how to love, which is of course true, but that's all he does, as one liberal preacher put it: "When love is the way, Earth will be a sanctuary." In other words, he's saying we we can bring heaven to earth. We can make it. We just need a we just need a helping hand. It's human glory once again, impatience for glory, and the nightmare for us is it all sounds so good, so right. It's plausible. It uses Bible words as and I. Uh, Words and ideas. It's religious appearances. And it's the same for King David. He was persuaded by Absalom. Even these 200 men from Jerusalem came to Hebron. It says they came innocently. Presumably, they really believed Absalom was going to be doing sacrifices. He used the right words in the right places. The religious appearances fooled. And it's amazing how alluring this is. Because it seems to appeal to our impatience. That's what's going on with Absalom. He wanted the kingdom and he wanted it now. It's like the prodigal son. Dad, I want my share of the inheritance now. And the the, the lure to human glory, it's, it's both a desire for the gift, not the giver. We want the money, not the God who gives it. But it's also a desire to have it now. We want the new creation to come in my timing, my methods. So we have itching ears, as Paul puts it. When someone suggests it's possible, we latch on. Don't be deceived by religious appearances, because God is moulding us to value more, more than just health and wealth, more than just this world. Better, He's training us. He's sculpting us to be worshippers of Him, to find true satisfaction, true and real joy in the source that of, that is all good, the Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he often does that through what John Piper's called the the seminary of suffering. He makes us wait. He takes off us rather than giving to us. He puts us through the mill, his his disciplining fatherly hand beginning to shape us. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's more glorious than health and wealth, isn't it? That's worth living for. And the thing is, that takes patience. It takes letting God be God and us be us. Don't be deceived by religious appearances. Our gaze needs to drop from those with the the right talk but actually impatient for personal glory and turn to the one who lived fully for the Father's glory, even through death itself. Jesus, of course, our true king, his life always pointed to his father. As a 12-year-old, he knew he needed to be in his father's house and as a 33-year-old, he knew even as he faced the jaws of death, his father's glory drove him on. He died to himself and he lived for God. And if we're united with him by his spirit, we have died to ourselves too and have been raised with him, raised to live to God's, to worship, to bring glory to him. And so the more time we spend with the true king, the less we'll look like the false ones. The more we dwell on and live with Jesus as our Lord, the less we'll be driven by greed and impatience, wanting our own glory. Instead, we'll live for him. And in so doing, this is what's amazing, in God's extraordinary grace, we'll find all that we were looking for and more because we'll have God himself. Absalom, he shows us our hearts, our longing for glory now in patience and greed, but Christ, Christ points us to a more wonderful life, a life lived as we were made to live, a life of glorifying the God of the universe. Yes, it may mean we don't have some things now. We have to be patient, but he has more in store. Heijing's funeral on Thursday, we had Isaiah 62 as one of the readings. Let me just read a couple of verses as we finish from that chapter, words that, that point us to what Christ our King is up to in preparing for us on that final day. Isaiah said this, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall." no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married isn't that wonderful delighted over by God himself that's worth not being uh, deceived by the false kings, that's worth sticking with Jesus God's chosen one the one to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.